Warning. This episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniaks. Listeners, I'm super excited today to have as my guest author Caitlin Starling. Uh, Caitlin's book, The Luminous Dead, which is honestly one of the spookiest books I've read in, like, forever, and I love it to bits was nominated for both the Locus and the Bram Stoker Awards, and was the winner of the Ladies of Horror Fiction Award. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I believe that you were first introduced to me by guest of the show, Valerie Valdez? Yes, I think that's correct. And it's, again, it's just like, Since that time, we've found ourselves in other social circles, but it's just such a fun thing for me now to be like, oh, yeah, people who have been on the show are like, hey, this other person would be a really great fit for the show. Why don't you have them on and help make those things happen? So I'm super glad to have you here. Yeah. You are going to be reading from Untitled Fairy Story. Is that correct? Yes. Um, So this is something that I started writing back in my computer records tell me 2015, which is for anybody playing at home after I had written the first draft of The Luminous Dead, but before I had gotten an agent, before I had sold it, and also before I had started writing either my new novella, Yellow Jessamine, or my book that comes out next year, The Death of Jane Lawrence. So it was it's positioned interestingly in that is after I wrote the book that I knew that I wanted to try and get a representation for, mm-hmm. but before I'd actually gotten there. So it's an interesting midpoint in my skill set. And it's also a story that I wrote specifically for a friend of mine, Shiella, and it's two of our characters from Guild Wars 2, except no longer <laughs> from Guild Wars 2. It's not fan fiction. Um, and I started writing a story about them, and I got probably about thirty-five or 40,000 words into it before I... I can't remember if I got distracted or I decided I wanted to redo something and then I got pulled into other projects and stuff and I haven't been able to come back to it. So oh, that's a mood. it is trumped in the sense that I, I just at the time decided not to keep putting work into it, but I plan to return on it someday with what I've learned since. And afterwards, I can tell you a bit about what I would change and why I want to get back to it at some point. Well, I'm a very excited for hearing it and hearing about all of that. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of intro because the part I'm going to read from is probably about 15,000 words, 25,000. It's, it's quite a ways into the start of the book. Um, there's a whole intro sequence that you are going to be missing. Solid. But it is essentially the story of a woman named Licia Atratinas. She is part of the Queen's Royal Guard, which is actually sort of a, along with being monarchist protection agents. They are tasked with taking care of some of the weirder things that go on. And in this case, that's in this world, that's mostly to do with the Fae. 
This world, the Fae are a known thing. They were, in fact, the dominant power in this world up until about 30 years ago, when humans invented railways and accidentally broke their power because the Fae can't cross uh, iron. I heard that idea first from Martha Wells, and I love it so much. I was excited to, to find a way to use it. So it's only been 30 years, but it's been 30 years where the Fae are just gone. Absolutely gone. They can't do anything. So Alicia was born around the time of that change. She's a little bit under 30. Mm -hmm. But she's the only, one of the only people who still has any kind of interactions with the Fae because she gets sent out into the hinterlands to take care of problems. Cool. Most recently, she was in a forest where she met a young Fae prince named Alcelstis, who loves smoking cigars, drinking whiskey, and has somehow made a gun <laughs> that he can safely use. Uh, they went on a little adventure. They killed something that really should not have been there. She has since returned home and thinks that, you know, that's now all behind her. She's going to write a report on it. It was very weird, but moving on. So she is at a party that her father is holding. And she has just been approached by a handsome man who looks oddly similar to the fairy prince that she left behind. But that can't be because <laughs> of those whole railways. But she's like, oh, well, this will work. Because, hey, he's hot, but he's not dangerous. <laughs> May I dance with you, he asked. Not Alcelstis at all. Her shoulders relaxed and she extended a hand to him, taking a few steps to the moving crowd. He took her hand in his, his skin warm and smooth, not made of bark and not lit by an unearthly glow. Sure, a fairy prince could wear a human glamour like a glove, but society had changed over the last three decades they had been in hiding, and he struck her as comfortable and natural. A fairy prince would have been perplexed by how group dances had been reduced to two dancers only, though they would have recognized mankind's preference for constrained, prescribed forms. He didn't dance like a fairy. He settled his free hand at the center of her back and moved with her into the first few steps of the dance, a deceptively complicated series of half-turns and match steps. Leisha felt herself relaxing quickly, as if he was the solution to all her problems, all the attractiveness of Alcestis with none of the danger. <laughs> And yet, he wouldn't have the same powerful mind. How could he? He had never decided to build a gun without being able to touch iron. She pushed the thought away. This close, she could see that some of his braids had been woven together across the back of his head and joined by a jeweled lapis pin to trap the rest of the thick fall of hair. I don't believe we've met, she said as they turned, pivoting closer to one of the open balcony doors. The cool wash of air helped her think. Haven't we? He asked, quirking a brow. I couldn't guess your name. That bright boyish smile broke over his features again. Couldn't you? he asked. She frowned, then lifted her left foot behind her, catching the bottom of her sword's sheath with her toe and tilting the hilt into his hip. <laughs> the man's pleasant expression twisted to pain, and he let go of her, stepping back. She moved back as well. Alcelstis, she said, hand going to the hilt of her sword. You need to get out. She didn't have her armor here, and she felt exposed. She felt wrong. All her certainty evaporated in an instant, confronted with the reality that he was here and she was at risk. Everybody in the room was. He touched her. He danced with her. Alcelstis winced, rubbing at his hip with one hand. We need to talk, he said, simply as if that explained everything, <laughs> as if that should stop her from taking his head off. But as she glanced around the room, she saw nobody had noticed them yet. Nobody knew they were in danger. They were having fun, feeling safe, and wasn't that what everything was for? She looked back at him in his human glamour. The similarities should have been undeniable, the recognition in his eyes unassailable, and that was before she accounted for the unlit cigar now clasped between the fingers of his left hand. <laughs> With a groan, she took his elbow and dragged him toward the balcony doors. How are you here? she hissed as they passed out into the night. Her mind raced. There had been no deal. He couldn't be here to collect on an unmade deal. He couldn't, notwithstanding all the iron laid between here and his clearing. 
That's why I came, he said, glancing around for eavesdroppers. He leaned in, took a step forward. She stood her ground, though her shoulders stiffened. All three lines between here and there have been broken. No, she scowled, reaching up and grabbing him by the elbow. He let her pull him to the corner of the balcony up against the railing as far from everybody as she could get. That's impossible. I was just there. It's been two days. I know, he said, eyes fixed on hers. I know. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. And I'm supposed to believe that you learned of it in two days and raced here, even though you had nothing to do with it, that you were that lucky. Righteous fury was rearing up inside of her, and she took a deep breath, willing herself to be calm. If she panicked, the whole room would panic too. Aselsist, I am not a fool. I know, he said. He finally glanced away, his fingers rasping over the cigar's wrapper as he fiddled with it anxiously. But it's true. Why were you even looking? He shifted uncomfortably, gaze still focused on the dancers in the main room. I was looking into that ancient beast, he said at last. It's not native to the area. It came from somewhere else. She realized belatedly that she'd never let go of him. Now she forced her fingers to loosen every inch in effort. Her mind was too fixed on his words. So those three weren't the first. No, he said. No, it had been brought there by somebody. Are you sure it's not so ancient that it can ignore the iron? He shook his head. Impossible. It's hard to explain, but trust me. Anything of Fayblood is blocked by the railways, unless they're broken. Are there any other bricks? Towards High Hollow? I don't know. Somebody's coming. She tensed, hand going for her sword, and then she stilled. Al Celsus's gaze was fixed on the party, and there, approaching, was one of her father's advisors, a middle-aged woman draped in expensive, imported silks. Before she could react, Al Celsus had turned back to her and taken her hand from her sword, bowing over it as he raised it to his lips. Leisha felt her cheeks flare with heat, heart stammering in her chest at the heady swirl of emotions. The advisor paused and offered Leisha a knowing, pleased smile. Then she <laughs> headed for someone else in the crowd. Better they think she have a paramour than suspect the truth. Leisha took a deep breath, bare fingers curling against his ungloved palm. Alcelsta strained it up, then leaned in. We need to figure out what's going on, he murmured. If we don't, it will be war. My kind have never been so firmly beaten before, and many of them are still angry. Very angry. And you? Why are you here, she asked. He was so close she could smell the lingering scent of old cigar smoke on him, and gunpowder, and something else, something spiced and rich that coiled around her lower spine, making her want to touch him, press into him. She grasped tight to her panic instead. Why don't you hate us? Because I love you too much, she said. <laughs> she turned her head, eyes widening. Al Celsus's nose brushed hers, and the sensation spot through her like a spark. I, humans, he said. I love humans too much. <laughs> he laughed awkwardly, then stepped away. Sorry, I've never been the best with words. Thank the fivefold god. Leisha leaned back against the balcony, trying to think straight again. Right, I suppose if we're all dead or subjugated, there'll be no more whiskey. Or cigars, he said, twiddling his own in emphasis. He chuckled again, then smoothed out the front of his embroidered suit and looked over his shoulder, toward the ballroom. We should be getting back. Or you should, at least. I'll stay nearby. We can talk more tomorrow evening. Later tonight, she clarified, I'll beg off and send some letters to alert the local rail offices. And in the morning, I'll ride for the capital. A good plan, he agreed, then offered his arm. She took it, allowing him to lead her back into the crush of people. Many glanced at them, and she pulled her hand away from him as the weight of their gazes settled on her. The brakes had probably already been found in at least the main line. Enough freight trains passed on those tracks that a brake would be found quickly. Repairs would hopefully only take a few days at most, depending on the size of the fracture. And the break in the line that wrapped around Penrith would be quick because... Wait. She scowled, took Al's arm again. She tugged him close and hissed in his ear. The line around Penrith is broken? Yes, he said. The line around Penrith is only around Penrith, she said, catching his gaze. It's a defensive line. 
That means somebody wanted to come here. Alcelsus opened his mouth to speak, a flash of bitter humor crossing his features, and then it disappeared. He swallowed thickly, throat bobbing. What is it? The doors to the great ballroom boomed open and the musicians stopped playing, the fiddler the last to trail off. The dancers stopped and pulled people away towards the outer walls. What could only be a fairy prince stepped into the hall. Shit, Alcelstus said. Shit! The fairy prince was tall and lean, wrapped in furs and silks. He wore gold-soled boots and had hair made of cattails the color of deepening dusk, a midnight teal pulled back to expose his cragged and pointed ears. Like Alcelstus, without his glamour, he looked as if he'd been carved from wood, but his skin was brown shading to green along his brow and branch-like beard. He walked with languid ease but undeniable presence, and he smiled, a cruel little thing. The room had gone silent, all eyes riveted on the prince and his entourage, several other high fae of the same type, as they crossed to the center of the ballroom. Nobody moved except to get out of their way. But it wasn't magic. It was fear. Pure, palpable fear that had gripped all of them in an instant, born of memory and of long generations of breeding. Lord Atratinus, the fairy prince said, voice booming despite the vaulted ceilings. How good to see you yet live. Lycia had reached for her dress sword, but her hands stilled as her father stepped away from the mass of guests. He held his chin up and carried himself as he always had. Though you certainly have aged, the prince said, smirking. What a pity. I had hoped to see you in all your seasons. <laughs> her father came to stand only a few feet away from the prince. He did not bow or even extend his hand in greeting. He simply regarded the prince gravely, jaw tense. Why hadn't he called for the guards? Her fingers closed around the hilt of her sword, but Alcelsus's hand closed on top of hers. He leaned into her, murmuring, It's not worth it. She glared at him and wished for half a second that she could rip his glamour from him, show the whole room what he was, but he didn't look proud or mocking. He looked scared. What do I do? She hissed back. Watch and hope. She shook her head and jerked away from his touch. Without another glance at him, she strode out to meet her father. Her heart hammered in her chest, but she'd been close to dying just a few nights before and tens of times before that. She knew how to use it to brace her spine, and she fixed her gaze on the fairy prince as she put herself between him and her father. If there had been panic in her father's eyes, she ignored it. She had to ignore it. For a long moment, nobody spoke. The prince regarded her, and behind her, her father's breath rattled in his chest. Then her father spoke, his voice soft and measured. And what have you come into my house for, he of a thousand flames? Leisha's heart sank, and her hand trembled on her sword. She'd heard that name before as a girl. Her father had told all the children stories about a powerful fairy able to burn a forest to ash with a snap of his fingers. What was a sword to that? That fairy's gaze left her, and the smile fell from his face as he focused on her father. Oh, Lord Atratinus, please reconsider your words. You know why I've come. Murmurs began to rise from the crowd. The rail lines, she heard. Fay and Penrith, wasn't there a bargain? Her father had gone pale, but when he lifted his hand, the voices fell silent. You cannot have her. Her. Leisha's heart stopped, and in the crowd, she thought she saw Celsus start forward, then stop himself. She could feel eyes on her, a hundred heads turning to watch her. No, he had to mean a different her, her sister, her mother, a prized mare. But the prince had turned to look at her once more, and his smile was creeping back. The arrangement, he said, canting his head, was that I would receive your firstborn child at a time of my choosing for a year and a day. The murmuring returned, rising quickly towards full speech, and then was cut off as the prince raised his hand and made a motion, the air in the room chilling and all speech evaporating. Her hand clenched, and she pulled her sword three inches from its sheath. He took a step towards her, ignoring the threat. That time has come, Lord Atratinus, and I see the stars have graced us with her presence tonight. She is not what I would have expected to come from your line. The bargain was made under different circumstances, her father said, voice dropping now to conversational levels. 
He stepped up to her side, laying one wizened hand on her shoulder. It is no longer valid. I beg to differ. The prince's voice was still loud, booming through the space, wiping away any chance of privacy. You, Lord Atratinus, offered your firstborn if I would move my court to its winter palace three months early and turn my attentions to your rival, Lady Pultia of Romwell. And I did. That the first rail lines were laid not two months later is not different circumstances. It is a direct attack on the bargain. You knowingly cut me off from collecting my side of the arrangement. In some courts, they would call for your death for it. But I am a generous prince, as you well know, and we were almost friends once. <laughs> His eyes had never left her, and she could feel her father's hand trembling on her shoulder. Around them, their audience shouted and spoke and questioned where the guards were, but it was as if they were in a different world entirely. Nobody came to their aid, and Leisha felt as if she were swimming through treacle as she tried to pull her sword free. Leisha, don't, her father hissed. But she had loosed it before he finished speaking. She raised it to the prince's throat. He simply smiled. How fitting that your daughter is made of the very steel that kept her from me all these years, the prince said, and his voice at last was softened, lowered for their ears only. But girl, you have no say in this. The bargain binds you as much as it does him. You will come with me, just as your father will now give me your true name. Leisha snarled in response, the only retort her mind could conjure. She couldn't let him have that, couldn't let him take her, and so she made the only move left for her. She spun and brought her blade toward her father's throat. But her limbs froze when she was six inches from his flesh, magic winding through her bones and freezing her in place. It lasted only a second, but it was long enough for her father to realize what she would have done and to retreat several harried paces. Flames sprung up between them, arcing in a circle around her, and when she could move again, she was alone, barely able to see or hear through the wall of fire. Father, she called, but the inferno swallowed up her voice. She felt a quickening in her throat just above her collarbones, and then it spread. It brought her to her knees, and her vision blurred with it. Her sword dropped from her fist, and she gasped for breath as the change blazed through her. He'd given the prince her name. The same instinct that had made everybody retreat at his entrance knew what was happening, and the worst part was that it felt natural. This binding felt inevitable, even a relief, like she'd been breathing smoke-filled air her entire life, and had finally taken her first lungful of clear breath. Tears welled in her eyes, and she wasn't sure what brought them. Pain? Fear? Happiness? She would follow him anywhere. She didn't want to follow him anywhere. The ring of fire died down, and she realized that there had been no heat rolling from the wall. Could she have walked through it? Had she failed? Everything looked much the same as it had before. Their guests and all their finery still stood as far from the tableau as they could manage, and her father and the prince still stood only a few feet from her. But her father looked old now, old and tired, and the prince seemed to shine, her gaze drawn back to him over and over again. "'The bargain is fulfilled,' the prince said with a pleased smile. "'Father,' she croaked, forcing herself to look at him. "'Don't worry, Alicia,' he said, not looking at her in return. "'Our ancestors survived centuries of subjugation. You are strong. You will last a year.' She couldn't read his expression. Shame? Disappointment? He had to understand why she had moved to kill him instead of the prince, had to grasp it, but that didn't mean he wouldn't hate her for it. She never felt this alone. The prince's hand settled on her shoulder and she stiffened, but the nascent flare of violent anger towards him was tamped down immediately. It wasn't replaced with love or subservience, and for that she should probably give her thanks, but the sudden external shift of her emotions left her off balance. She wanted to speak, but couldn't. Come, Leisha, the prince said. She looked up at him and saw as he made a gesture to his coterie, standing several yards back and studying the gathered crowd with fascination and delight. She didn't move, but felt herself move, as if she'd taken a half-step to the left, and suddenly all the humans in the room seemed gray and distant, faintly blurred. Their murmurings dropped away. She and the fairies were somewhere else, a somewhere else that was chill against her skin. Mm. Then, as she watched, Alcelstis stepped out of the crowd. 
For a half second, he was as gray and blurred as the rest, but then he too stepped into the somewhere else, and she watched as he gained color and permanence, and his glamour fell away, revealing his plum bark and glowing braided ferns. Alcelstis, the prince greeted. His voice had lost his good cheer and become tense and flat. It pained her physically, and she had grabbed her sword and staggered to her feet before she could stop herself. Her blade glowed a faint, sickly blue where there was iron. How strange that you'd be here the same night I came. I want the girl, he said. Yes, please, she thought. Servitude to him seemed a lighter punishment than this, and if Alcestis left, how would she be able to get the word to the capital? How could she warn everybody? Had this prince been the one to break the rails? If you want to add to your collection of human memorabilia, the prince said, make your own bargains. I have been owed this one for nearly three decades. You always were stubborn, Elheron, Alcestis said. Look, I will make my own bargain with you. You only wanted to take from Lord Atratinus because it was owed, and I have something I think you'll want even more. Alheron eyed Alcestis warily, then lifted one hand. He flicked his fingers, and a flame danced upon his palm. Come, talk. His court was flitting among the patrons now as if they were invisible, inspecting clothing and trinkets, chattering among themselves. A few watched Alcestis cross the floor to them and take out his cigar, leaning forward to light it from Alheron's palm. I've learned things since I last came home, Alcestis said, then drew on his cigar, tasting the smoke and letting it out in a complex pattern from his lips. He considered it a moment, then flipped back the long hem of his suit coat and took his pistol from where it was tucked, impossibly, against his thigh. Part of his glamour? <laughs> he held the pistol to Alheron. I offer you a gun that we can use. I recommend wearing gloves regardless, as a precaution, as a few of the innermost mechanisms are still made of steel, but everything external is safe and shields the wielder. Alheron stared at the weapon. She wanted to speak, wanted to shout. He couldn't hand that over. She trusted him against her better judgment, but this vindictive princeling, no. But speech was difficult, and the resistance in her throat gave her time to think. Alheron didn't know that Alcestis knew her. If he did, he might drive the bargain price up. Vindictive, powerful. She couldn't trust him to deal fairly. She clamped her lips shut. Alheron reached out and gingerly took the pistol in his left hand. Could you make more? he asked, gaze flicking back to Alcestis for only a moment. Yes. This gun, and your memories of making it then, Alheron said, expression transformed by desire. Bring the father here, Alcestis said. The transfer of the bargain must be witnessed by those with an interest in it. O'Haran's gaze turned flinty, but only for a moment. Then the lust was back, the covetousness. He handed the pistol back to Alcestis, and for a moment Lycia thought that the deal had fallen through. But then the prince shimmered and went gray, shifting back to the world of man. She saw him flit to her father's side, where he sat at the edge of the room, surrounded by courtiers drinking heavily from a large cup. <laughs> Fear, pain, cautiousness. She felt all those feelings as if they were her own, as her father and his fellows reacted to the prince's sudden return. And then he was there, in full bright color, staring at her across the ghostly room. Father, she croaked, her voice sounding alien in the dull din of the nearby party. Her father didn't look at her. Shame overshadowed all other emotions on his brow. Alcestis tried to look at ease as the prince led her father back to them. He played with the pistol, turning it this way and that, inspecting it. Well then, he said, in return for the human girl, I offer you my pistol and the memories of making it. Fair? She will retain ultimate fealty to me. We are not bargaining for her true name, merely her... Attachment, Alheron said. And I ask one more thing of you, dear brother. Alcestis looked up at the prince, his expression bored, but she could see how his shoulders had straightened. Name it. Your left eye for a year and a day. Alcestis went very still, no longer fiddling with the pistol. Brother, consider it repayment for your disrespect. He grit his teeth. The rail lines have been a convenience for you. Your left eye, brother. 
Her father looked between the two fae, then looked at her. His shame flickered between regret and fear. My left eye, Alcelsis conceded. I accept. He held out the gun. She glanced to it once, then again, and then saw her father turn to look at it, really look at it. His eyes widened as he saw Huerin take the weapon without issue. Good. If one good thing would come of this, at least her father knew that the fae courts would soon be better armed, and if she could just get that letter out without Celsus's help, things might still be set to rights. The bargain is made, Alharen said, and then with a lazy wave of his hand, her father was once more gray and blurred, and something inside her heart that had taken root and woven itself through her limbs snapped. Her head spun. The deep need to serve the prince faded to a dull throb, and she realized that, had she wanted to, she could have lifted her sword against him. And beside her, Alcelstis was screaming. She turned to him to see his hands pressed to his face, his knees buckling. It was all she could do not to go to his side, and instead stand by as if in uncaring horror. Now, Alharen said, a third eye blinking open on his left cheek, I think at high time all of us return to the court of bright burning lights. The eye was golden where the princes were green, and it spun wildly in its sockets, looking frantically this way and that as if lost. Finally, it came to rest on Leisha's face. What say you all? Cries of assent came from the other fae, though a few still lingered amongst the crowds. She watched as they all retreated toward the door, then paused as one as Elharin looked back at her and Alcelstis. Come along, he said. You both shall be my guests. Alcelstis gasped out a curse, but staggered to his feet. He stretched out one hand for her. It was coated in golden ichor. She stared at it, then sheathed her sword and bent to grab up the cigar he'd dropped before taking hold of him. The world shimmered and dropped away. Ooh. Mercy me! going on in that there there is a lot going on in that and a lot that i immediately fell in love with and wanted to hear everything else and want to hold this book in my hand and put it on my shelf because like flirt fighting (laughs) they are they are very fun my friend and i um have described them as idiots to lovers (laughs) Uh, in the sense that they very clearly both really like each other, but they both assume the other doesn't like them. And so therefore they keep kind of going along and going along until one day they're married and they're like, wait, what happened? (laughs) That's beautiful. The the ex to lovers trope is one that I love. It is a very good trope, Bront. And, (laughs) And the just all of the the fairy trappings of it and the like something that i always bristle at is when people say about anything oh you can't tell a new story about x y or z and mm-hmm. i think that we hear that a fair amount about fairies because there's a lot of fairy stories but yeah there's always something new. Yeah, and part of this comes to comes from I've had a lot of discussions with my husband about how it's very frustrating in stories where humans make bargains with fey creatures and then they're like, "Oh, la di da, I'll figure a way out of it." And then the story actually lets them break the bargain and it, uh-huh. there are no problems. We think that that's a very feels like a very American approach to fairies, honestly, <laughs> that you can just break a contract and it's fine and you win and everyone else loses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, it was exciting to write a world where bargains are taken very seriously and the purposeful breaking of a bargain is actually a bad thing, mm-hmm. is a choice that people make that has consequences. And it's not just how do you find the loophole, 
Or if it is, it's, you know, almost like a Max Gladstone level of if you can find the loophole, you win anyway, because that's a lot of good lawyering. Right. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a it's a fun book. And the main reason why I've kind of abandoned it, aside from lack of time, is that I kind of want to return to it with more of a horror-tinged, dark fantasy lens. There are mm. already elements in there that are pretty gnarly, but on an atmospheric level, it's not quite there. And so mm-hmm. one of my plans is to come back to the story, probably keep almost entirely the same plot that I have outlined, but rewrite it from scratch so that it has this atmosphere of, you know, ethereal menace, basically. Mm-hmm. The thing that came to mind when I was re- when I was practicing reading this for today's episode was that, A, Leisha is very non-present mm-hmm. while she's being controlled. And that was intentional at the time, but I think it can be done better. Uh, particularly, I want to try doing it in a way that she doesn't realize that things have changed. Mm-hmm. And it's her, mm-hmm. it's a close third person, and so... You as the audience is going, wait a minute, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Um, but especially after writing The Luminous Dead and, and some of my other projects where that really play with the fluidity of perception mm-hmm. and the fact that the character can't go back and read what was just written about them three pages ago uh-huh. to make sure they're consistent. I really want to play with that more in terms of the impact that a fairy having your true name would have on a character. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's some room there for some pretty distressing identity horror. Yeah. Especially in a character who, like Leisha, you know, on if you read her bio, she, you know, it would say that she's this loyal knight and she's very, you know, she's a cop, basically. She's lawful good. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's put in the situation where she's used to having power in a very structured way that she can back up with brute force. Mm-hmm. And... Not just that that doesn't work anymore, but that it can be turned to other purposes without her noticing. It can be taken advantage Mm. of. So one day, one day. I think there's a lot there in that idea of, like, specifically when, when looked at from the lens of how we're examining policing in this, the year of our Lord 2020, where there is so much legitimate criticism of the way that policing is state-sanctioned violence and is the Mm -hmm. state's, you know, uh, monopoly on violence. And to to think about it in a lens of, like, you know, because, like, people, not every person goes into policing because they want to, like, be somebody able to you know, put the boot on a other person's neck. Some people yeah. legitimately get into it because they want to help people, but that's, you know, something And then that it gets twisted, twisted and maybe, and I think at least in some cases, people don't notice it's that they, that their outlook has changed, has been changed by the uh, circumstances are dropped in. In Leisha's case in particular, no, she's young enough to not actually remember the shift in power that happened. Mm-hmm. And so she's coming at this from a position of, well, this is unassailably right. And she's backed up by people with a lot of power who have been taken advantage of. She's She is mm. the strong arm of a reactionary force that doesn't remember what she's reacting against, basically. Um, this is a hell yeah, of a I mean, lot she, to, to say about life with that. Yeah, yeah and it, it's, you know, in, in that way, it's also probably stuff that I'm not quite ready to say. There's a lot of research and listening and soul searching that has to go on before I really have something worthwhile to say about it. But mm-hmm. there's definitely something there. 
and also just it's it's kind of fun every so often to to write a you know a lawful good paladin type mm-hmm. you know doesn't want to question the rules but keeps being put in positions where the rules don't work anymore uh-huh and perhaps realizing that the rules never worked yeah yeah i'm thinking ursula vernon uh, writing as t kingfisher the clockwork boys and one of the main characters in that is basically ursula got it, getting mad at the portrayal of paladins as being like you know whiny lawful goods and yeah <laughs> like just at you know it, it was written entirely as a reaction to the portrayal of paladins and as a result has a lot of really interesting things to say about paladins and about yeah. like good and duty and what is right and what is law and all of that the other thing that i really liked about this it brought a lot of the ways that i think about fairies are influenced by terry pratchett and about the ways that he depicts the fair folk and how that sort of moves as the world moves on and so the idea of a rail network as a ring of protection against the fair folk reminded me a whole lot of one of Pratchett's last novels, uh, Raising Steam, but it was just like, it set things ticking in my head again that I was like, oh yeah, I want to explore these things myself. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting idea of, in this case, to get out of the situation they were in, which was basically that, you know... Uh, a, f- a fairy can always beat a human in a straight fight, in a mm-hmm. quote right. fight, even without resorting to bargains and stuff. They just they have additional powers, especially in this world, you know, where the high fae are vaguely human-like in shape and form and size, and they share some, although not all, but some motivations in common. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the the dark bargain of freeing yourself from that is rampant industrialization, right? Really fast because once you realize that that's going to protect your people, you rush forward without doing any kind of thinking into what it's going to mean for your country, your mm-hmm. your populace, which doesn't really, you know, that's that's a fancy rich people's party, so that yeah. doesn't really get into it there. But there are bits of the book that do that, you know, railways are not necessarily great. I, I say this as someone who loves trains, right. but, you know, look at how uh, the railways across the U.S. were built at great speed and at great human cost and mm-hmm. look at who what humans you know, who were taking the brunt of those costs and who was making all the money off of it. And then, you know, give it a, well, and we can also beat the commies angle uh-huh. of it sort of thing of, you know, 50s Red Scare, everyone rah-rah together, and you get some scary stuff. Yeah, I think last year was, was like a significant anniversary. I don't remember which anniversary of the driving of the Golden Spike and the, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. And there was an exhibit um there's a, a railroad museum in sacramento that had an extensive exhibit about the completion of the transcontinental railroad and what the human cost was there and like you know i'd always kind of like known about like oh yeah like these things were like a lot of people died it was really unsafe it was a lot of but like just actually having it laid out is just like it's staggering yeah and it it's something that 
does it there are so many things that don't get talked about and i think it's really valuable how fiction can bring those to the forefront in in some ways yeah I mean, it's the duality of public works. If you yeah. public works, we think of public works as you know a general good. Not, I mean, the railroads were monopolized, and, and it was right. not yeah. actually like a public work. But the same sort of thing of you know it was billed as this will be great for the country. But depending on how you go about actually enacting it, even if the final product is very good for a lot of people, yeah, it gets, it gets messy. It it really does. Yeah, in in Oakland, California, for instance, like the freeways divided the wealthy neighborhoods from the poor neighborhoods and, like, severely ghettoized West Oakland and, like, all of these things that really, as a person who I think researches a lot more than I ever write and, like, you know, I'll fall down a research hole, it is really frustrating how those things don't get talked about in history because they are messy or inconvenient. Uh, yeah. And how m- that makes me really mad because I'm like, but I want to know, like, I want to know the full history. I, I, you know, I want, I want history. N- I'm not going to say neutral because history is not neutral. It's never neutral. Yeah. But I want, uh, you know, I want the the people's history. I want the history from the other side of the tracks, from the other side of the wall, from the other side of the yeah. way. And I do want to, you know, if this, if if I get back to this project, it's not ever going to be a one-to-one nice comparison of stuff. Um, you know, part of the dark fantasy or horror aspect of it is that the the relationship between, generally speaking, the fair folk and humans prior to this has been actively predatory mm-hmm. on a physical level. Um, there are many, many fae who subsist on eating humans in this world. So it's right. kind of like a Zootopia thing where that's actually not a great allegory for anything. <laughs> um, so I want I, you know, it's it's one of those weird intersections where, you know, you've got to be careful what you're trying to say and how you're trying to say it. If, you, if, if the tools you're trying to use to say it don't quite actually work, you start, you end up saying something very weird and different. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there, but there's still a lot there, I think, yeah. again, with care to be explored. Yeah, for sure the the idea of stripping this project to the bones and saying okay here's the structure here's what i want to do but then putting you know dark fantasy horror set dressing on it brings back something that i was talking about with megan o'keefe on our episode a couple of months ago where it is it's very much this idea of how you dress the thing up is what makes it what it is um and we had I, I had I had made a joke about how Animal Crossing could be a tremendous horror game if you just stripped away the cutesy visuals and like took the hue and saturation down a little bit. Yeah. But I I would be interested to hear some of your thoughts about sort of that process of taking something that is I'm not going to say like bright and cheery, but taking something that is not horror and twisting it into horror. Yeah, so it's an interesting task because for me at least, and if if you've read my stuff, you'll know, I tend to go for very small casts. And mm-hmm. part of the challenge of, even at the time I was originally writing this fairy book, part of the challenge was it's in a much bigger world with a much larger cast of characters. It is still largely focused on two characters because I came up through fanfic and I kind of right. got my training wheels that way. And, and roleplay too, or one-on-one roleplay. Which are both very good things. 
Yes, I We love to see it. I one time calculated how many words I wrote in a year just with roleplay and it was somewhere over a million and it was very terrifying but very very fun. <laughs> Didn't even notice I was doing it. But with a smaller cast and a limited space, a lot of people go, "Oh, how could you how is Lumin- the Luminous said your first book? It's two characters in one setting." Like that, how could you do that? And to mm-hmm. me, it was easy because I didn't have to try and juggle a lot of logistics. I mean, there are a lot of logistics in The Luminous oh, Dead. yeah, absolutely. But they came in through the writing of it, not through assembling the plot. The plot itself is relatively simple. You know, she goes there, she comes back, she goes there again, then she goes back again. And it's, it's all the stuff that goes in between. And so that is a very easy thing to add atmosphere to for me. Mm-hmm. The, the cave in particular is just, is just as much of a character as Jire or M in that book. Uh, in Yellow Jessamine, you know, Evelyn's house and the surrounding dying city, those are as much characters, maybe not to the same extent, but they're definitely characters. Mm-hmm. In The Death of Jane Lawrence, which is coming out next fall, Lindridge Hall is a character. And in this fairy book, you don't have that. Mm-hmm. The setting is, it's it's your standard fantasy adventure in a lot of ways of we're going between places and we're trying to do things. The fairy court, of course, has a very particular feel to it and all this stuff. So I can't use my normal tricks Uh for this one. And also because the plot actually has a lot to do with going places and meeting people and discovering things. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, who's breaking the rail lines, who stands to benefit, how are they going to get around these particular trials that are being set before them? Like, okay, so you need to get into the, now you need to get to the capital and you need to bring your fairy accomplice slash maybe boyfriend with you how do you do it Uh uh-huh and what is it like for him to do that what Mm -hmm. does he lose by doing it and so it's kind of by looking digging into those implications i think that that's the avenue i would take to be making it horror to really be focusing on let's see i put it i was trying to explain to my husband recently why people enjoy horror because he doesn't get it because his argument was that characters in horror are incompetent. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point. And I was like, well, not quite. Often they are, but, but more specifically, they're ineffective. Yeah. They can be highly competent individuals, but nothing they're doing is working. Yeah. Characters and that in horror is what, yeah. might be supremely competent at everything else, but they are thrown up against something they are not competent at. Exactly. That's personally my favorite kind of horror because you have these characters with all these tools at their disposal and you just watch all their tools break. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, how are you going to go orthogonal to this and figure out another way to do it? Or are you not going to be able to do it and you're just going to end up dead right. <laughs> or a monster or whatever? And so when you're looking at an adventure plot like Fairy Story would have, you have to look for the opportunities to make them ineffective in a way that is not frustrating to the reader, which Mm -hmm. is hard because you don't want it to feel cheap. And you want it to actually be in a way that you can kind of see coming, but you're surprised by how it plays out so that you're interested in in continuing to go. And I don't obviously know exactly how I would do it. Haven't done it yet. (laughs) But I think that that's the thing to look at. You know, the fact that, okay, Alher and the fairy prince stealing Alcelsus, or sorry, trading fairly for Alcelsus's left eye that mm-hmm. could just be a nice little cool set piece of a thing that happens, or it could cause both problems and solutions later down the line. And you can do that in a non-horror book quite well as well. You know, it's just a neat little thing. But then you add what's Alcelsus's perception of literally mm-hmm. having half of his vision somewhere else. And also what happens when he crosses, when there's iron between him and his eye. Yeah. What happens then? Yeah. I keep going on like I, I actually have a, a final plan or thesis to this, and I really don't. It's it's just spitballing. 
I mean, uh, that's a, a very valid way of plotting. And, like, you know, I think something that I had to figure out early on in my writing career was, you know, some people obviously just, like, lock themselves into their office with a bottle of whiskey and a typewriter and get really sad and then write a novel or something. But, like, my place in science fiction, fantasy, horror is very much one of a writing community. And, like, when I'm stuck, I bounce ideas off of my friends. That gives me a a different perspective on the things that I wouldn't necessarily think of, but that gives me, like, oh. You know, that, that realization moment where you're like, okay, you just raised a problem, and you may have thought of, you know... You you were thinking of it from a completely different angle, but I can come into it now with my lens and see, okay, and this is how I'm going to use this to make my life, my characters' lives harder. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Shy, aside from being the person who came up with Al Celstis, um, is also, you know, one of my best friends and my beta reader and my in programmer speak, my rubber ducky that I run mm-hmm. things by. I just talk at it and then come up with a solution. And she's like, great, cool, go write it. <laughs> and a lot of this is stuff that we talked about of things that we wanted to see these characters go through together and also things that we were like, ooh, that's going to be a problem. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in particular, I was just, you know, I'm still kind of sitting here noodling on it. You know, I think I think for a fantasy adventure story like that, to, to make it fall in the horror realm, you have to make it so the characters still feel alone. They're surrounded mm-hmm. by a huge cast, but none of that cast is helping them. Yeah, and um, yeah, you kind of you kind of enforce the claustrophobia without actually sticking them in a cave. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about like the ways that authors make their readers feel out of kilter as something that's really effective. I'm reading Harrow the Ninth right now, and like. No spoilers, but, like, there is so much fuckery going on in that book. I am having to take it very slowly because my brain is a mimic. And if I read it for too long, my brain starts thinking in those patterns, which is not a great place to be. Yep. <laughs> but it is something that's, that goes back to that idea I had of, you know, how I would change that particular scene that I just read is you, the reader, don't get to see spelled out what Leash is going through. It just mm-hmm. starts happening and it shifts the entire narration along with it. Yeah. Yeah. Or it should. Doesn't happen it right should. now. Right. Right now yeah. it's nice and straightforward and Leisha's feeling this way. She's feeling this way. Now she's doing this. Yep. Have an adventure fantasy. So something that we have in the show notes is talking about having fun where you can because writing is tough. And that's... I'm just stealing a quote straight from what you wrote. But I wanted to hear some of your thoughts on that, because I think that's really important. Yeah, so of course, I'm coming from the land of have sold novels, um, have deadlines. It, mm-hmm. it got, you know, it's very different on that side. So, you know, I have a lot of friends who are on the other side where they're querying or they're even just starting to write their first novels. And it's very frustrating. And especially querying, you're just sort of getting hit constantly with either no response, which feels terrible, or rejections, which feel terrible, or partial requests or full requests, which make you feel very, very scared, but also Mm -hmm. excited, but scared. Um, There are things at every stage that are not pleasant, even before you get to the writing. And then when you get to the writing, you've got, you know, 
like many people, I tend to right around the 60,000 word mark, 50 to 60,000 word mark, I start reevaluating my entire life. I think mm-hmm. that I'm a terrible person, a terrible writer. I don't know what I'm doing. This is the time everyone finds out I'm a fraud, everything like that. I'm currently doing what I call audio tuning edits on Jane Lawrence, which means reading the entire book out loud start to finish prior to copy edits, specifically with an ear to how it sounds. But because it's prior to copy edits, I'm catching a lot of things that I'm like, really? A professional has still... Ha- uh, me, <laughs> I, a professional author, still have that problem in here. Yep. It's, Sometimes it's sometimes it's fun because I think the book is very good, and sometimes it's miserable. But that's that's where the whole have fun where you can. Certain things are going to be fun. They may what things those are may change over time. Um, mm-hmm. In my case, right now, the reading's a little bit fun. Mostly it's not fun. Mostly nothing official that I'm doing is fun at this point. It'll change again. It'll go back to being fun. I look forward to it. But in the meantime, I have a couple Google Docs open where I write little things that I don't have any intention of finishing. I almost read one of those today, but I figured not really fair because it's not actually trunked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also like to, going back to this this whole, the reason I wrote this whole fairy book or tried to write the whole fairy book is I like to write things for friends because that's what I grew up doing. You know, I went for, especially mm-hmm. with role-playing and writing fan, fan too, but role-playing in particular, every single post is trying to get a particular reaction out of the person you're playing with. And if you're playing with somebody that you know really well, you know Mm -hmm. exactly how to push their buttons, and it is so much fun to do it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just so that they, they, you know, in in parentheses, just start swearing at you for the thing you just pulled in the last couple paragraphs. Um, So I've been trying to kind of reach for that right now, because that kind of stuff, you know, especially with friends that I've had for a long time, it's actually not that big of an investment. Everyone kind of understands that since all of us have lives, it's probably going to trail off in a couple, you know, emails back and forth. But you have fun with it while you can. And then it sort of loosens the rest of it up a little mm-hmm. bit, at least for me. And also, the other thing is when you're having fun, you're not noticing that you're working. Yeah. And so you keep gaining skills while you're doing whatever it is that's fun. You know, obviously not the same thing as focus study on a particular skill that you're trying to pick up. But, you yeah. know, writing a couple million words of role playing and fan fiction didn't hurt. Mm hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to say, attention span in this economy? Yeah, <laughs> right? God, I miss the days where I would I would just spend literal full 16-hour days glued to my laptop writing back and forth with a friend, and I don't know how either of us had the time. Yeah. But I sure enjoyed it. Boy, howdy. Um, so this is a great segue into uh, this blue police box just showed up in my room and... Uh, I thought maybe we could step into this time machine for a second and go back to when you were a new writer and talk about Mm -hmm. uh, some of the things you wish you had known then that you know now. Things that I wish I had known then that I know now. I think, honestly, the biggest thing is that there actually is a market for what I want to write. Mm -hmm. When I wrote The Luminous Dead, I was writing it for myself. It was actually, I was trying to prove to myself that I could still write something that's original fiction it mm-hmm. wasn't fan fiction, it wasn't role-playing, because that's all I had been doing for the last several years. And it was very much a spiteful thing based on some stuff that had happened. And I kind of finished writing it and went, oh no, this is good. I need to figure <laughs> out what to do next. I had this, this will make probably some of your listeners hate me. I had no idea about anything in terms of like querying or agents or how publishing worked. Mm-hmm. And then I went ahead and 
got an agent and sold my first book that way. <laughs> Not the first book I'd ever written, just the first book I'd ever actually tried to do anything with. Right. But when I, I was like, oh, no, it's good. I have to do something with this. I The the second part of that sentence was, but even though I need to try, no one's going to buy it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's about two women who are in a messy, codependent, very, very problematic relationship yeah. <laughs> that I found very attractive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sci-fi horror and it's very techie but it's not the right kind of techie (laughs) and it's not the right type of queer and am i the right type of queer to be writing this and all this stuff and i was like okay ignoring it still gonna try which Mm -hmm. i don't know how i had that impulse i am very thankful that i had that impulse because it worked out and it turned out that not only did people want to read it they wanted to nominate it for awards Mm-hmm. And then I wrote a weird gothic horror novel <laughs> that involves calculus, Victorian surgery, occult magic, and critique of Western occult magic traditions, and, you know, just really weird metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Thinking, well, I like it. <laughs> no one's else going to like it. And then that one's sold. So, you know, <laughs> not everything you write will... You know, it may not find a home eventually. It may not find a home. It may just teach you something along the way. But whatever is in your brain that really makes you excited, you can probably make other people excited about it. Mm-hmm. And you don't even have to make other people excited about it a lot of the times. Like, you can just give the elevator pitch of, this is a gothic horror with these four things in it. Well, that but that's making you excited. It's not like a, it's not like a focused a, attempt. It's not like I'm like aggressively trying to get you to do it. But you know, you just have to get it to. A, it's it's sort of the thing like if you don't love yourself, how can you love other people? I mean, that's not mm-hmm. quite true. We all know that. But but that idea of if you don't treat yourself well, how are you learning to treat others well? Kind of concept where you know you can kind of get around it sometimes if you're lucky. But it helps a lot if if you're excited by the thing that you're working on it's a lot easier to make other people excited about the thing yeah. you're working on. It's also a lot easier to work on the thing. Most of the time, if yeah. If you're, it's <laughs> a, like, you know, it's not always going to be easy. It's work. But yeah. it's going to be a lot easier to turn back and go, yeah, I want to keep working on this thing. I mean, Victorian gothic horror thing that I've been talking about, Death of Jane Lawrence, I have been working on since 2016. And I have had to rewrite and reread that thing so many times. So many times. And the thing that has kept me going on that one is just being so ready to shove it in people's faces and go, <laughs> look, look at this. Isn't this cool? Yeah. And when I first wrote it, I there wasn't as much stuff I could point to and say, look, look at this. Look, look at what's cool. The revising of it and the rewriting of it and the endless rewriting of it got it to the point where the things that I thought were cool were actually on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a thing that I, in particular, am amazingly bad at. I will think that I have communicated something very clearly. Oh, move. And then I'll go back and realize that was all in my head and none of it's on the page. And whoops. Yeah. (laughs) For real. So you've been mentioning the death of Jane Lawrence and you've already mentioned a couple of times Yellow Jessamine, uh, which came out on September 5th from Neon Hemlock. Yes. 
And I would recommend that everybody who is listening to this go out and purchase that, A, because we want to support Caitlin, and B, because we want to support small presses like Neon Hemlock. There is also an audiobook version. Yes. That is very exciting. Um, which I have, I have heard, you know, I haven't fully listened to all of it yet. Um, because I get really weird about listening to my own audiobooks, because I remember <laughs> myself reading it, and it sounds weird. But the accent that Heather Wilde's picked for Evelyn is just the Fantastic. most sinister, evil, posh, <laughs> judgy. It's so good. It's so good. That's so, so good to hear. So listeners, please go pick one or the other or both of those up from your preferred bookseller. Uh, we will have links, of course, in the show notes. Caitlin, where can our listeners find you elsewhere on the interwebs? I am mainly active on Twitter, and my handle there is at C-S-E-E underscore Starling. It's, it's a badly thought out pun, but now it's printed on the back of my book, so it's staying. <laughs> um, there, for a while, my website, before I had an author website, it was C Starling Right, C Starling Knit, C Starling, whatever, um, <laughs> which is very cute, but makes it hard to say in podcasts. Yep. And I also keep my website relatively updated. It's caitlinstarling.com. Yep. My contact form does work. You can contact me there if you like. Um, and you can see not only the books I have in progress or out, you can also check out my knitting. Nice. <laughs> um, Yellow Jessamine actually had a knit along to go with it with uh, some custom dyed yarn, which was really cool. That's and I'm also cool. on Instagram at author C Starling. I think that's right. I will find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah. It'll all work Mostly out. pictures of cats. As as it should be. I mean, cats, we're talking knitting, about internet. And the, new, so like... and the new place that I'm slowly renovating. Not slowly. Nice. It's actually going very fast. It just feels very slow because I would like to live in it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, mood. Caitlin, thank you so, so much once again for being on the show. It's been an absolute joy. Yeah, I had a great time too. Excellent. Uh, listeners, stick around for our regular episode next month. Uh, our October guest will be Macy. That is Jennifer Mace for people who are not as online as all of us are. Keep an eye out for the anthology that Macy is co-editing, Silk and Steel, which will be coming out very shortly. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show... Consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Mm-hmm.